Hey, that time of the day, <laughs> the Deconstructor Fun Podcast is back. And we're back with the third episode of our mobile publisher series. Now, in each of these episodes, we sat down with the CEO of a top mobile publisher and discussed how they approach publishing. What is their company strategy? How do they work with developers? Now, do they see the future of publishing on mobile? In the last two episodes, we talked to Scopely's co-CEO, Javier Ferreira, and Tilting Point's president, Samir El-Ajili. Uh, the third ev- episode, and this third episode, was supposed to be with Ivan Trenchik from Superscale. And by supposed, I mean that we already recorded it and it's ready to go, but not just yet. The team at Superscale have been super busy scaling games and just need a moment to get to the latest, uh, to get the latest infographs to the blog posts. So, so don't you worry, uh, that will be there. And don't worry also because we won't leave you stranded. In this episode, um, you're about to hear the powerful class Kirsting, who was supposed to be uh, the grand finale of the series, the, the cherry on the top, if you will. Now, why I think Klaus is such a great person to talk about mobile publishing is that he has been there, done that, and definitely got the t-shirt. Klaus founded and run Flare Games, and in this episode, he spills the beans on mobile publishing and offers a view on what he'd do differently if he could do it all again, knowing what he knows now. Anyways, hope you enjoy this episode. I know Jake and I both enjoyed recording it. And if you feel that we earned five stars, don't be shy. Throw them our way. And tap that subscribe button too, because we got some really, really good content coming your way and you don't want to miss it. Now, before we jump into the episode, just a couple of messages from the amazing, um, not sponsors, but supporters of this podcast and supporters of Deconstructor of Fun. This podcast episode is also brought to you by IronSource. Now, IronSource is one of the biggest platforms helping game developers to monetize and market their games today. And they work with some of the world's most successful game developers. Just look at any of the games you have on your phone and chances are they're working with IronSource. Now, what makes IronSource unique is the way that their platform closes the monetization and marketing loop so that developers can optimize both sides to accelerate the growth of their games. And hey, if, if you like Deconstructor of Fun podcast, you love IronSource Level Up podcast. And no, it's not because yours truly and the good old Joseph Kim have co-hosted some of the, uh, the Level Up podcast episodes. <laughs> not at all. It's because the Level Up podcast features game industry leaders talking about everything related to game growth and development. So if you're interested in hearing from successful hyper-casual game developers or really any successful game developers for that matter, you can check out the podcast on Apple, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundLink, or the Iron Source website. You'll find the link to the Level Up podcast in the description of this episode. So get you some Iron Source. This podcast episode is brought to you by App Annie, the leading global provider of mobile market data. Now, personally, when it comes to exploring the market and creating a winning mobile strategy, I do it all with App Annie. I track the top charts, rank history, get download and revenue estimates. App Annie also helps me to understand detailed usage of detailed usage data of my competitors' game, and that's actually really helpful. And if you're in the marketing side, App Annie is there for you as well. It helps you to understand what it is you need to do to increase your discoverability and how you should improve your advertising strategies. Now, combined with unparalleled service and support, there's really no reason why you shouldn't be using App Annie. So go to appannie.com and sign up and tell them hi from your friends at Deconstructor of Fun. So you're listening to Deconstructor of Fun podcast. So I think you might be in a situation where you're thinking about starting your own company, your own games company. Uh, You might have that perfect idea and and even the team you want to work with, but you're just kind of unsure what the next step should be. Or I don't know, maybe you already have started a a games company and you're just now looking to, to find that certain partner that can take you to the next level, you know, make your dreams a reality. In any case, whether you're just starting up your your startup journey or you've taken your first steps, I really suggest you talk to Play Ventures. 
I can give you the basics, you know, like the fact that Play Ventures is a premium early stage VC fund that invests into gaming and gaming service startups around the world, or that the fund invests into the most promising mobile and PC free-to-play game studios and game service startups that are looking for more than just money, or that the fund is investing globally in Europe, Asia, and North America. But let's be honest, every good fund does this. So what makes Play Ventures truly different is that the founders of the fund the founders of Play Ventures, who I know personally for a decade, I mean, they've walked a mile in your shoes, in the, in the shoes of a startup, you know, a founder of a, of a startup. And they started gaming companies and they've scaled them and they've successfully sold them to companies like Disney and King. In other words, if, if you're looking for a VC that is not a, not, you know, not just a, a suit with a money bag, but someone who truly understands your business, I really suggest you go to playventures.vc and connect with the team. You can also find the link to Playventures in the description below and kick off your startup journey in, in the right way with the right people. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. Your hosts today are myself, Joe Kim, and Miska Katkoff. We are joined today by Klaus Kirsting, CEO of Phoenix Games and formerly founder and CEO of Flare Games, which was one of the big mobile game publishers. But Klaus has also had a pretty long history in, in mobile games, including as an investor, uh, investing in a bunch of game companies, but also including Supercell, Wooga, and Pickpock. So today we're concluding our mobile game publishing series by providing a little bit of a different perspective, which is around some of the potential dangers or drawbacks of actually working with the mobile game publisher. So hi, Klaus, before we get started, could you talk a little bit about you and your background and in particular your experience at Flare Games and now what you're doing at Phoenix Games? Awesome. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I always start to describe my life uh, in a professional context with a sentence, I've been a gamer all my life. <laughs> um, I've been lucky enough to have a dad that worked uh, at an IT center in a university. So we had internet at home and it was still called ARPANET. And it was all exciting and the noises and uh, all text-based, obviously. My first game was uh, a text-based multi-user dungeon in English while I could neither read nor speak English my dad live translating next to me. And somehow that was the moment where I lost my soul to games. Um, then the typical geek youth of uh, playing too many video games, pen and paper role-playing games, uh, tabletops, complicated strategy games with folders of rule sets, um, all the stuff that was pretty uncool back in the 80s and 90s and is pretty awesome today, apparently. Um, thank you, Netflix. Um, <laughs> And uh, it even continued after my, my youth and school time to my university time. So I, I blew three university studies because I played too much. Um, and during my third study, uh, founded my first company, which was back then Gameforge. Um, started with two founders. Um, and it was the beginning of an amazing ride. Um, five years later, we were 650 people and did around 150 million of annual revenue. Um, so crazy. Um, I was a kid back then, uh, 21 when I founded the company. Uh, so completely green, plenty of mistakes, a few great decisions that then drove the success. Um, in 2010, I left Gameforge because it wasn't making me happy anymore. Um, I started this whole thing out with, a, yeah, with being an entrepreneur, right? and feeling the impact of my work every day. And suddenly it felt like that. One day I was just a manager, managing managers who managed managers who managed managers. And there was no impact. I didn't see the purpose that much. I tried to overcompensate that with working more, which obviously didn't work. Um, and then I decided to leave Gameforge and do something else, which I didn't know what that would be at that point in time but it was clear that I had to move on. Um, I spent some time off, uh, took some time with friends and families, traveling and all of these things. 
and uh, started uh, doing angel and Series A investments into uh, yeah, mainly gaming and e-commerce companies. Um, most notably, you mentioned it, Supercell, uh, which was obviously an even crazier ride than the ride I just had finished. Um, and it was interesting to have that not from the driver's seat, but more like yeah, in the trunk and somebody opening it every now and then to ask a question or spar an idea and then closing the trunk again. Um, and uh, like two weeks later, you are at a completely different place. Um, it, it was crazy. Um, um, I still uh, do uh, seed and Series A investments. Uh, have around 20 of those active right now uh, and did a bunch of exits to the big tech companies, you name them. Um, but that wasn't really fulfilling me in terms of having a purpose. It's, it's fun and you meet smart people and you learn all the time and that's awesome. But I always have the desire and need to build something with my, well, own hands is a little bit exaggerated because I'm not doing it with my hands, but um, build something on my own, my own company. And, and so I founded a new company called Flare Games. Um, the first idea of that company actually was to do location-based games. So uh, think uh, Pokemon Go far too early without the franchise and execute it in a really crappy way. <laughs> that was us. Um, the, the game never shipped because it was really bad. Um, and uh, we pivoted the company around to then first a free-to-play developer and then later a free-to-play publisher um, because we identified that there are a bunch of developers out there that don't have the resources or particular skill sets to really do a lot of amazing things that they should be able to achieve otherwise. Um, that was uh, an interesting time. Obviously, the competitive pressure in the market increased drastically during the years where we were running around there. Um, last year, uh, we decided to uh, recognize that Flare Games as a third-party publisher has failed. Um, and I moved on and now uh, I'm running Phoenix Games, um, which we will touch on later, I guess. Okay. So just talking about your experience at Flare Games, and you just said that you kind of failed at Flare Games. Could you talk about what you did specifically in terms of what do you think you guys did right? And what do you think went wrong that kind of caused you not to be able to be successful with respect mm -hmm. to being a mobile game publisher? Um, long story short, it basically comes down to two things. Um, we were not particularly great in managing our risk. So we were overexposed financially on a lot of titles. And then obviously you have to earn that amount back. Um, that uh, in a changing landscape and more competitive market is always a challenge. So it's development delays, uh, uh, budget budgets running over uh, and then the the market situation in general I mean especially in mobile games game development is a crappy business model and uh, all the market <laughs> dynamics play against you um, in I always use the analogy of, of, of game development being like rolling the dice and when you are really good at what you are doing, your dice looks different than the ones that other people are, 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 uh, are throwing. But um, two things are true independent of that. And the first one is every dice roll costs incrementally more than the last one. Uh, and uh, the second thing is you have to roll a higher and higher number to be successful. Um, and that makes it just very challenging. Developing and or publishing mobile games is really, really hard. Right. Now, what, what about things that you guys did right? Was, was there anything that, that you think that, um, you know, that, that, uh, that you guys did that was good and that other mobile game publishers out there should emulate? Um, I, I think there were a bunch of things that we, that we did uh, good and where we were actually not bad at. Um, we picked a few great developers to work with and uh, working with them was a sheer pleasure most of the time because we enabled them to do stuff that they couldn't do on their own. That is the other side of the coin of being too uh, risk exposed, I guess. If there is more capital than there should be, obviously you can do more things than you should be doing, but you can do more things. Um, another thing that I'm particularly proud of is the sheer quality of the games that we shipped. 
Right. So it's it's less about the commercial impact or commercial results that Flare Games had, but I'm literally personally proud for every single game that we shipped because they are really great games. Um, that doesn't translate into business success, uh, success automatically, as everybody knows, but it is something that I look back towards and where I say we did something right. Got it. Um, Mishka? Um, yeah, so, so Klaus, first of all, thank you for, for joining the podcast. I'm, I'm super excited to have you here because um, um, you're a true gamer. Like You present yourself as a gamer, but you don't have to say that you're a gamer because of what you're saying, what you're talking about, quality over even commercial success, you are a true gamer. <laughs> so it's it's awesome to to have you on this series. And especially with your background of being an ex-publisher is is pretty awesome. <laughs> and regarding being an ex-publisher, <laughs> so um, um, as Finns call it, it's a donkey bridge. So it's <laughs> let's lead to the first question. This is regarding your your um your uh your text or your your uh, your post or you know what was on game industry biz and the uh, the title was how to spot an exploitative mobile game publisher deal and there you raised four critical points and it said uh, number one is the organic revenues as a collateral for user acquisition spend the second point was one-sided budget decision authority the third part was loss of control over an IP and Sorry, the fourth point was restricted termination rights. So yes. would you mind kind of for those who did not read and who should be read? I mean, if you haven't read the, uh, the, uh, the, the article on Game Industry Biz by Klaus, you should. But if you haven't, uh, Klaus, can you, can you kind of open up those four points? <laughs> yes, my pleasure, obviously. Uh, thank you for the warm recommendation for the <laughs> article. Um, so what um, I, I see in a lot of publishing deals that I've seen out there from several angles is mainly those four clauses that really hurt the developer, not in terms of under leveraging what he has or under using what he's building, but in actually exploiting what he achieved by taking stuff away from him that he already has. Um, I mean, publishing games is a really risky business model and i think risk and reward that a publisher takes should always be balanced in a way um at, at flare games we took over all the dev costs and so we carried all the financial risk of developing a game and so asking for things like an ip or control over an ip feels pretty reasonable there if the game is already ready and out there and you come with uh promises of, of scaling it or helping to run it better or live ops or whatever else you can help a developer with, um, the risk portion is over. And basically, there is something that is working that you might or might not make more successful. And they're asking for a lot feels a little bit exploitative from just a fairness perspective and risk reward perspective. Uh, diving into the four topics into particular, um, organics as a collateral for UA spend. Obviously, most developers and most publishers or other companies struggle with user acquisition in general in this competitive landscape. And prices are going up. You need uh, creative bandwidth. You need a lot of uh, numbers and number analytics uh, capabilities. You need capital. All of these are things that the average developer doesn't really have on the scale and, and expertise to compete in the market today. And that is obviously underusing the game that you just launched and paid for completely. Um, so developers are looking for somebody who help them, to help them with that, which is a smart decision if they realize that they can't do it on their own. Um, I, I've seen user acquisition deals out there where um, a third party then spends on their own risk against user acquisition and recoups their money from the users that they buy. And that is totally reasonable. They want their money back first. There is maybe more. If there is more, it can be shared in whatever way. Then parties can negotiate and everybody is happy and smiling. Um, where I feel it becomes exploitative is when the existing organic traffic that the game already has is a collateral. Um, the uh, partner that the developer is partnering up with is asking for a guaranteed return on his UA spend basically taking away bottom line from the developer that was already there and completely misaligning the interests. And if I have like a guaranteed return of 120% on return of investment, 
<laughs> and I want to exploit it, I would spend the maximum possible where the 20% that I make in return eat up all the revenue from the organics. That's probably a little bit over the top, but it is a great explanation of how interests are completely misaligned by this exploitative clause. Um, and this is something that I have seen several times done right and several times done wrong out there. The second one makes it even more harmful or amplifies the damage that can be done by the first one. And that is uh, one-sided decision authority over the budget of spend. When the UA is not profitable in itself and organics are used as collateral for the margin, you lose bottom line when the publisher ramps up budget. And that is something that can kill a developer. It's really, it's, it's, it's bleeding the developer dry by raising non-profitable UA budget, which is a position that a developer never should bring themselves into. Um, there should be uh, processes of alignment and agreeing on a budget with reviewing data together and seeing what it actually does for both parties. Um, and that is a partnership then. Um, that is always what I would aspire towards with, uh, uh, from a developer's perspective. Third one is loss of control over your IP. Um, and uh, where this is exploited, potential partners walk in and uh, claim, hey, we will spend against your game and against your IP, and that is awesome. But of course, we want to make sure that what we boost your IP with is something that we profit from as well, which in itself might be a reasonable claim somehow if you take over substantial risk. Um, if the IP is with a developer and they finance the whole game, it is a completely unreasonable claim um, and something that a developer should, in, under those circumstances, never agree to. Um, and in the end, just looking at it from an equity value perspective from the developer side, owning IP is building company valuation. So that is something that where there always should be hard negotiations and there might be situations where giving up an IP to build something better, bigger, more successful is actually giving you more than the IP would, but it is, you have to look at it carefully and weigh the options. Mm. And last but not least, there is restricted termination rights, especially with all of the three above. Um, if you can't leave a relationship that you realized is not helping or bad for you as a company, then you basically are in a situation where you can go and die immediately um, <laughs> because this is what it will eventually lead towards. Um, I saw all of those practices out there um, looking at companies from, from a Phoenix perspective. I've obviously seen them while I was still running uh, Flare games and we stayed miles away from those. Um, it's just something that I really don't appreciate in terms of how the market develops. Yes, publishing is a really, really hard business model, but um, the success or the way to success is not exploitative deals, but it should be better execution. Again, that is really, really hard, but for me, and that was the driver of, of writing this article, this is about, uh, yeah, helping to, to educate the developer community out there to help them prosper, be more successful and make smarter decisions and maybe avoid some stupid mistake that might eventually kill their company. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, reading through this and, and having you explain them, it, it makes all the sense and it's kind of like mind boggling that there are these type of deals that are just very short sighted uh, and, and kind of, yeah, it, it doesn't, doesn't, you know, bring any yeah it's just crazy but um one question that arises to anybody who read it and um who might not be, you know heard you speak or or not knowing what kind of a gamer you really are and then a person who loves games uh they might question is like okay so he has these four points are these the points that he learned from running flare games through your own mistakes or <laughs> is it something that you saw in the market or both um, all of those four points are things that I saw in the markets. Um, we didn't use any of those in the circumstance of there is a game, hey, let's partner up to be more successful. 
Um, of course, as a publisher, we tried to get control over the IP when we carry all the financial risk. And then you can negotiate around it as partners and usually arrive to a conclusion somewhere in the middle. Um, because obviously there has to be more of a long-term reward if you take all the risk as well that goes just beyond one title, right? Mm, um, uh, same goes for, for termination rights. Obviously, if you carry all the risk, the developer should not be able to walk away immediately as long as you guarantee that you pay the bills. Yeah. Um, and uh, under these circumstances, again, probably a reasonable ask. Um, for me, it's all about the time and the situation where you try to strike those clauses. Um, and uh, there are ones where it is reasonable and there are times where it is just exploitative. Mm. With regards to the first two, so uh, budget decision authority, yes, we had those in our contracts. Again, we carried all the risk. So, of course, we should have it because in the end, we will pay for it. <laughs> um, uh, Organic revenues as a collateral is something that we never did. Uh, I think it is not the right thing to do. Our partnerships worked differently. In the end, we were always about maximizing the lifetime profit of a game and sharing that after recouping our investment. Mm. Yeah, if I could just interject here, just, you know, I'm kind of the, the rumor guy, but uh, just want to back up class a little bit in the, in the sense that, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, friends in the industry and Flare Games was considered the most developer friendly publisher at, at the time. So just, just wanted to, <laughs> to, to give you that point, class. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's, it's actually something that is really, really important to me because, I mean, on the one hand, uh, obviously you want to run a company that is successful. On the other hand, I have I have had a lot of luck in the industry, and I feel an obligation to to give back to the community. Um, and that always sounds like really really cheesy, but I really feel like that. Um, and and then there is the other thing that yes, you might build a company, but on this side you are building a reputation, and that reputation will follow me to my next company and the company after, and all of my investments and my reputation is important to me. Uh, more important than immediate success, especially if it is built on an exploitative business model that can only last for a certain time. Mm. Yeah. Um, so let's let's jump into into the more of a, like a history of of publishing mm -hmm. and the fact that it hasn't really worked. I mean, it didn't work for Flare Games, but didn't work for for much bigger publishers like EA. I mean, Chilingo was was alive for a very long time, but. I don't believe they have published anything since War Friends, which was published maybe two to three years ago. Yeah. So I don't know if it's still alive, but but that was it. Activision has tried to do publishing. I think they launched one Call of Duty game back in the day. Um, Zynga did some publishing uh, way back then. Rovio Stars was one. You know, there's there's tons. We can almost name any big game developer uh, or a game publisher, a game developer, and they have done publishing at some point. True. So. So go, kind of going back to the fact that there's a lot of um a lot of um a lot of graves <laughs> for for these for these uh for these tries uh, are those four reasons the main uh, the, the the ones kind of are are those four points that you made are they the reason why they why there are no no not that many successful publishers um I don't think that four things are a reason to to explain that most of the people and companies who try to do third-party publishing failed. I think it's more uh, a natural reaction uh, to try to patch a business model that is really, really hard and risky. Mm -hmm. um, the landscape of publishers has thinned out substantially over the last years. And I, I agree, like everybody tried it, probably with the exception of Supercell, who always focused on their own stuff. Um, when we looked at what what we at Flare Games did and where we probably made mistakes that led to ultimately the, the failing as a third-party publisher, um, I mentioned the, the risk and exposure before. Um, another thing is it's difficult to align two companies around one game if two companies ultimately want different things. So what we've seen in our relationships with third-party developers in the past is that there are always like these pivotal moments where 
interests completely disalign out of fear or risk uh, uh, assumption. And one example would be, you soft launch a game together and the numbers are okay, but not great. And as a publisher, what you want is, you want to see traje uh, trajectory on the numbers getting better so that you can keep up the belief that the investment in the game makes sense. And so you need all hands on deck, uh, everybody get their shit together and, and move the numbers. Um, as a developer on the other side, your first idea is like, oh, they will probably terminate the game. So let's start working on some, some RFPs to make sure we have something to work on that will pay our bills when the game is terminated. And obviously that is not a great basis to turn a game around, which is okay, but not great, even if it has the potential. And there are some other pivotal moments, especially then later in live ops, close to gates, where you have like uh, typical uh, uh, fear or, or risk points in the lifetime of a game development, where interests, as much as you try to align them with a smart contract, are just not aligned whatever you do. Um, and that is a point where we have seen a lot of games under deliver as an end, a lot of relationships being challenged. And uh, from a Flagons perspective, I would say that we overcame most of those challenges in the end, but not necessarily the challenges to business successes that came from the disalignment of interests in those mm. points. Okay, so that's that's interesting. And I mean, we've had we've had three CEOs kind of present their different models for you know for probably the three biggest publishers, quote unquote publishers, on on previously. And everybody has uh, has has their own take on the model with with Scopely's kind of where they you know take over the developer if if the relationship is successful. So that kind of aligns everybody's target together. Uh, with uh, tilting point, kind of going towards building long lasting relationship, but always starting from the point where they the the developer already has a live game because they want to make sure that the developer has walked a mile in their shoes in a way so that they they know the value that the the, the publisher is bringing to all the way. A super scale model where basically they they don't want they don't want a part of the developer they don't want even their name kind of out there they just want to help them to scale mm -hmm. and take a piece that is clearly um, you know contributed by their ability to scale so that those are kind of like the three models and of course the CEOs are stating that their models are successful otherwise you know <laughs> why wouldn't it be there but do you feel that do you feel that there's room for 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 publishers on mobile and do you feel that um the type of models that we're seeing now in the market makes sense i think that there is not one model that makes sense for every developer but developers need different things some need more financial power to work on something that is bigger more awesome more beautiful and that is something that can be solved by some publishers. Mm. Some developers need help with scaling a game that is already there and they just lack the skills and money to do UA. And there are other publishers, whether they call themselves publishers or something else, that can help them with that. Um, uh, to all other disciplines of, of life operating, running, developing, marketing a game where some companies are just stronger than others. Um, so I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, there are different models because there are different games and different developers. And I don't think we have seen a dominant model emerge yet. Mm -hmm. I doubt if there will ever be a dominant model. Um, I believe that third-party publishing will not become easier with the market maturing further. So it is... Um, challenging to run a publisher of whatever kind, color, or flavor. Um, and it's about constantly reevaluating the model that you chose to be the right one for your company and the slice of developers that are out there in the market. Mm. All right, let me, let me ask an interesting question. So uh, I have hypoth hypothetically, we're going into a time machine and you have all this experience of running Flare games. We're going to go back to 2019 but you haven't you haven't run still the company so you can start a publisher from the beginning you have unlimited resources would you do it or would you do a different kind of company or let, no let's put it this way what kind of a publisher would you build if you could start all over again knowing what you know now 
Huh. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Um, I would probably go for a fully integrated developer uh, organization. So having publishing and development org under one roof to solve the alignment problem. Because from my perspective, despite the fact that publishing is a really challenging business model per se, and so probably I would build a different company, um, I would I would say that the alignment issues have been the ones that had the biggest impact on success or failure. Um, and from talks to other people in the industry, that's something that comes back to me again and again. So there seems to be a pattern out there that not only I experienced, um, but other people as well. By having them fully integrated, you have different challenges, but mm -hmm. you don't have that one. Got um, it. Which might be smart or not. Um, time will tell. So you would build a large alliance of developers. I would build a large alliance of developers. Got it. <laughs> what, what a coincidence, huh? <laughs> hmm, interesting. We should talk about that <laughs> later in this podcast. But JK, do you want to talk about some emerging trends in the future? Sure. So, Klaus, you know, one of the great things about our industry is just the amount of change and innovation we continue to see. New winners and, and new winners and losers emerge as we see companies adapt to the changing sort of competitive landscape. And just based on your response to the last question, it sounds like you, you seem to say it seems like you're saying that there is at least a space for different kinds of mobile game publishers, depending on you know the type of developer that they're working with. But wanted to get your take in terms of as we continue to see the competitive landscape adapt and evolve. You know, how do you think mobile game publishers, uh, mobile game publishing, will sort of change and adapt in the future? Um, I think, as as a consequence of there being different developers with different needs, the publishing models that we see out there will be even more specialized in the future than they are today. Right. So uh, the the one stop shop publishing solution is probably nothing that there is a real audience for in the developer community. And having all of these skills doesn't make any sense if not everybody needs them. Um, so it will be probably more specialized on the particular strengths that you can really bring as an organization where you can really help developers that respond to your business model and, and to your offer. And you see the specialization in the market already. I mean, uh, it, is, it is just there and it, it will continue, I think. Um, I think publishing as a business model as in all those kinds of flavors and, and colors can still work. It is just hard. And specialization obviously makes better execution easier. So specialization might improve your odds. And do you think that specialization takes the form of a bunch of different smaller sort of mobile game publishing companies? Or do you think there is like a single organization, like a transformer organization that can just kind of like adapt to the different needs of different uh, mobile game studios? Um, it will probably, and that is something that we, that we see right now, um, create an, an uplift of several small publishers that try around with their strengths and weaknesses and try to strike some deals to, to basically gain mileage and, and, and gather first experiences and learnings. That is something that is already happening for, for quite some time. Um, and then there, is, there are obviously the ones that have been successful in one of the ways of publishing that is out there and that then with the resources and on the tra uh, trajectory of success can double down and reiterate on, on their specializations, get better at that, get bigger in scale, get bigger in bandwidth, um, and just do more of that. Um, and so I think the short answer is both. Okay. And, and then do you have any thoughts in terms of specific winners or losers in the future? Like you mentioned, you know, high alignment. Does that, is that speaking to more of the Scopely model or just wanted to get your thoughts in terms of who you think is going to win in, 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 in the near term future? Um, I mean, when you look at the trajectory and, and the track record of Scopely so far, they have had a bunch of successes on relevant scale. So um, uh, it speaks of, of, of great execution in a lot of things, in great picks for IPs. Uh, they are doing a lot of things right, I would say. Um, 
they raised a bunch of money as well, um, which is on the one hand obviously good, um, but always bears the risk of overextending. Um, and uh, so I don't think you can you can already say this is the thing. You can say the traction looks good, but time will tell. I don't think that there is a proven third-party publishing model in the market as of today. Right. And then you talked about, you know, the importance of alignment in terms of the publisher and the studio. But I also want to dig into more about, you know, in terms of that relationship of publishers and developers, what are some of the other things? Like, what should that relation look like to be as successful as possible in the future? Um, it should be a partnership driven by doing the best for the game and humbleness on all sides above everything else. Um, where it becomes challenging is when one side or the other side thinks they are smarter than the other and then ignores input, data, uh, experience, uh, track record, whatever. Um, not thinking of a particular case, but just in, in terms of how partnerships in general should work. Both organizations have their strengths and weaknesses, and both should nonetheless try to get the input on every discipline uh, from the other, because in the end, it will help you make smarter decisions. Um, and smarter decisions, in the end, lead to more business success and a bigger and more successful game. Got it. And then I just want to actually want to shift gears a little bit before uh, handing over to Mishka, but, you know, so you've, 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 uh, as a mobile game publisher, you've met with a bunch of studios. You've been a very successful investor. And so actually talking more on, about the development side, from your perspective, what do you think it takes to be a very successful mobile game developer? What are some of the successful characteristics or traits? Uh, some, of the well, some of the characteristics are for sure a lean operation that can test and iterate rapidly um, and, and humbleness on your own ideas. So there are, there are a bunch of developers that decide to do something and then just do it no matter what the feedback or data is that they gather. The developers that are great at what they are doing are trying out ideas based on an iterative process of how they arrive on that idea and then try to validate as many things as fast as possible. And the moment they see a yellow flag, they drop everything and take up the next idea. Um, that needs a lot of self-reflection. That needs a lot of willingness to fail. And obviously, it needs the <laughs> the leeway on the financial side to be able to fail. Because dropping a game in soft launch is a really, really hard decision. Because you did like a bunch of work and you could just press a button and it's out there. It might not be perfect, but it could be out there immediately. And at that point in time saying, okay, this one didn't work. Let's go back to the whiteboard is really hard. Um, in terms of how a company develops and gets better as a company, if you see those signs that it won't work, it's still the best decision. It is hard and it is expensive and it costs you a year or two, but it is the best decision for the company. Right. Mishka? Oh, I, I, I love listening to this. This is just fascinating. Uh, so um, uh, I, I agree on so many, so many notions that you're raising and it kind of makes you think uh, about, you know, decisions made in the past anyway but but let's talk about um let's talk about phoenix games uh which is your current venture mm -hmm. and um if i went i went of course to the website and i read that the phoenix games is an international group of free-to-play game companies mm -hmm. was founded this year and um i'm gonna quote something it's 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 because of dis it's disillusioned with the exploitative practices that are beginning to dominate the mobile game publishing industry, we are on a mission to work with the world's most talented developers and service providers in an environment where everyone can benefit. Well Played Games is the first company to join Phoenix Games family. And if people are not aware of Well Played Games, they're ex-Exient developers. And Exient is known for 
um, well, I personally know them a lot from racing games. So really, really talented team from Leamington Spa UK. Anyways, so a well-played game is the first first one to join family. And with further acquisitions set to be announced very soon, uh, maybe on this podcast, uh, <laughs> to, to keep up to date with all developments, stay tuned to the press room. So that's that's basically it. And, and the notion is that Phoenix firmly believes that backing great companies with the freedom to create will yield exciting results for everyone. So uh, Klaus, can you talk a little bit more about Phoenix Games? And this sounds like your time machine going back to 2019, setting up a new venture which is actually Phoenix Games. Uh, it kind of is, but I still <laughs> would love to have the time machine. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would be nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, last year we recognized, when I was still running Flare Games, um, that third-party publishing, at least for us, has failed. Uh, we will not be able to do it properly. Um, and basically, we went back to the drawing board um, and I tried to figure out what I want to do next with the learnings that I had. Um, and I already mentioned the difficulty of alignment between the developer and the publisher. Um, I mentioned the risk reward that drastically changes in a super competitive market that gets even more competitive. Um, what I've seen on, on top of that is that capital access for game developers basically dried up completely over the last years. And that is the logical conclusion of a business model becoming more challenging and the risk profile changing. Uh, even, even me personally, who I think that I understand something of investing in game companies, do it substantially more hesitantly than I did in the past mm. because it's just much more risky. Um, and when you look at the market as it is today, I basically see three categories of companies. And the, the one is like the, let's call them winners. They have everything. They are on scale. They are growing. They are profitable. They have op the, all the operational skill sets. They have a bunch of games and IP out there. It's good to be them. Um, they can raise any amount of money that they want to at decent valuations. They can sell their company because there is aggressive consolidation going on. If you are on that side of the street, you can smile all day long. Um, most developers out there are on the exact opposite side of the street. So they are usually doing work for hire somewhat, so selling their time with a margin um, and investing the money that they make from that in something that they really believe in, their own game, their own IP, something that they live and die for and breathe and get up in the morning for. Um, and they hope and believe, and you really have to believe to get up every morning, um, that this will change the face of their company forever and uh, they might be successful and get out of this work for hire spiral that in the end is not scalable and not what most of these people really want to do for an eternity. Um, with the current market dynamics and risk profiles and competitiveness, it is unlikely that it will. So most of these companies, and this is the unfortunate truth, will stay there forever or die being crushed by market forces. Um, there is a third category and that is the category that I personally consider the most interesting. And that is the guys just in the middle between the two. Um, their typical profile is they have like one, two, three, maybe four games out there. They have some revenue. They have found some operational success. Usually their existing business is projecting downwards, so shrinking month over month. Uh, the existing business usually is highly profitable because they have small live ops teams, if at all, uh, and are having most of their resources on the next thing to compensate for the uh, trajectory that is going downwards. Um, they usually have operational shortcomings, um, user acquisition, uh, data analysis, business intelligence, uh, live ops, uh, events, promotion, segmentation, all of the stuff uh, that come not naturally to any developer. Um, and they want to turn the company around by then shipping a new game and bringing them to a new level, ending up in the same situation. Um, I used the dice analogy before, so it gets more expensive and more risky with every new try. But what those companies basically do is they bet the farm with every new game that they are trying to develop. And that is 
not very healthy from a risk perspective. Um, with what I've seen from a publisher perspective, obviously I and my team have built some experience on how to help on exactly the areas that those developers have shortcomings at. And so our current strategy is to, with Phoenix, look at developers out there that roughly fit this profile uh, and then uh, create value in, in three areas. Uh, the first one is a stupid multiple arbitrage. The Chinese are playing it for ages already. Um, the moment I acquire a developer, the developer is part of something bigger with a bigger scale and a different risk profile. And so, at least on paper, um, the developer is worth immediately more. Um, it's stupid, but that's how it works. It's not necessarily showing on your bank account immediately. It might at some point in time later in terms of your company is worth more. Um, that's nice, but pretty boring. Um, the much more interesting angle is the second one. Um, and that is uh, operational uplift. With the skill sets that we assembled over the last years, with the ability of picking the right developers and identifying the, uh, uh, the weaknesses of the developer and where we can add just operational value add, um, we tend to find developers where we can really change the trajectory of an existing portfolio and turn the whole company around or help them turn the whole company around into something that is growing self-sufficient and investing into new things. And that is obviously much more fun. Um, and the third angle is uh, capital, um, both for working capital purposes as well as for structuring deals in a way that makes sense for everybody, um, which is something that is, uh, well, falling short in the current market situation. Those three things together <clears throat> then create usually uh, an aligned interest. So what we, what we look for is not to waltz in and change everything that a company is doing, quite the opposite. The companies we are talking about, this middle slice, the entrepreneurs and founders achieved something that is remarkable because getting there and finding that level of operational success is already really hard. And getting there is a real achievement. Um, so we don't thrive or uh, aim to change management, change processes, change culture, change anything in the company, really. Our goal is more to provide a tool set of things, technology, expertise, capital, where we can help the management team that brought the company that far to do an even better job. Um, I think of the whole thing as a collective. I think of the whole thing as well as adding company to our companies to our portfolio, uh, more like uh, adding smart people to our portfolio. Um, I rarely believe that I'm the smartest guy in the room, and if so, I'm usually in the wrong room. Um, and so I, I, I like working with smart people. Uh, all of these people who have brought companies to these levels are smart. Um, and so they will, in the end, help me to make smarter decisions for Phoenix as a whole and to create alignment. And now we are back to the alignment challenge from the beginning. Uh, the typical deal that we are doing has a cash proportion. So, of course, the developers and founders should take some money off the table uh, in a meaningful way, uh, usually a success-based one that is then either cash or options or stock, can be all of that and a substantial portion of Phoenix stock to create the alignment of building something great together. Um, that is, all of that should be there. And then obviously you can haggle around what portion is what, and the, there is not one answer to it. But that is basically then uh, making sure that the developer and the founders of these developers are rewarded for what they achieved so far, have an immediate operational uplift by leveraging what we bring to the table, and then have a participation in the bigger success. Mm. Got it. So, so to reiterate everything, so Phoenix is like the three points you mentioned was the multiple arbitrage, not the most important part, but definitely a valuable part. Uh, the operational uplift and the capital, and um, and the deals are structured in a way that that the um, the developers who are um, successful but not they didn't knock it off the park. They might have 
to use baseball terms, which I don't know anything about baseball, it's the first <laughs> base, right, Joe? Uh, yeah, first or second base, I guess. First or second base. Okay, got it. So they didn't they hit the home run, but they're on the field playing. <laughs> so, so you're bringing them home with with basically um, uh, providing uh, providing this multiple arbitrage. Well, multiple arbitrage comes from from everything, but providing capital and operational uplift, and you're aligning everybody under the same team. By by creating a deal structure where not only is there a cash immediately for for the uh, for the founders because you know they have been successful they are on the field playing and uh, and the second part is giving them options or stock in the Phoenix so that they are a part of this alliance uh, of of uh, of other developers am I am I correct That is a great summary and then there should be a portion of earn out participation in immediate realization of leverage on what they bring to the table. Yes. Perfect. Okay, so let's talk about Phoenix a little bit more. Um, what is the structure of the of Phoenix and um, how big it is like in terms of like the people who work directly for Phoenix and and the companies, you know, this or the studios, however you say you you call it, I probably assume that most of your deals are with with companies that have a single studio. Uh, mo yeah, most of our deals are with companies that have a single studio. So we did announce one transaction so far. Um, we are not really in a hurry to announce a lot of things immediately. Uh, <laughs> so we are totally fine in just doing our thing. Um, we are not uh, in the need of, of raising external capital or building up a story. Um, there will be a time for that at a certain point in time. But right now, for us, it's about focusing on the execution. Mm -hmm. There already have been more transactions than the one, um, which we haven't announced. We haven't announced them for reasons. Um, <laughs> and in due time, we will obviously announce more. We are working on several deals in parallel right now on top. Um, and it's going to be an exciting second half of 2019, I would say. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. And you're going on a on a big family trip to Canada. Does this have anything to do with the upcoming announcements, or no? <laughs> uh, obviously, I will not comment on that. <laughs> but um, of course, Canada has great developers. Uh, it has great forest and beers as well, and whales. I heard. So let's see. There might be time for all of that. So let's say I'm a, I'm a Canadian developer, and I'm either I'm probably in Vancouver if I'm a Canadian developer. So I'm. I'm pretty good. I'm on the second or, or, or first base. Uh, what kind of game companies are you looking for to partner or acquire? How, however, you want to mention, like who, what, uh, what kind of companies are you looking to join Phoenix? Um, it should be self-reflected game developers and founders who have who, who see what they are good at and where they need help with. Um, it should be companies that have achieved some success. So I'm not talking millions of revenues, but the typical profile we are looking at is somewhere between like 250 to 750K a month. That is something where I feel like comfortable. So it is a decent level of success already. Mm -hmm. um, it makes sense for some smaller ones as well, but um, then it's a case by case thing. Um, there should be, so we should be able to see substantial areas where we can bring immediate value add through helping with capital, with skills, with resources, with infrastructure, with whatever, so that we can really bring the company as a whole in a substantial, in a substantial better situation, relatively short term, to then give the founders the means to execute what they think is best for the company. Mm. Um, that is all we are after. And uh, lastly, how, how big is Phoenix at this point? Like how many people do you have? Uh, delivering this operational uplift? Um, so all in all with uh, the operational uplift part and the overhead that you need to do, uh, need to have to run an M&A business, we are around 50 people. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, pretty, a, a decent size, but not too big. We can have impact without uh, uh, running into each other while doing so. Um, and it's a size I'm, very, I'm feeling very comfortable with. Excellent. Um, Yeah, and JK. All right. Well, just to just to wrap things up and take this home, Klaus, thank you very much for joining us today. So maybe we could just end with, like, do you have any final recommendations or suggestions for mobile game developers trying to launch 
their games either working with or without a game publisher? <clears throat> um, obviously, try around a lot, iterate a lot, realized failure rather early than short, uh, earlier than later. Um, if you find a partner, make sure to get references from partners <laughs> of other partners they have worked with. Look maybe out for those four, but not only for the four that I mentioned. In the end, a contract should reflect a partnership that is treating risk and reward in a fair way. And uh, be careful what you sign. Got it. And how can people get in touch with you for you know, companies that want to join the, the Phoenix network? Uh, business at phoenixgames.com is our email address. Um, uh, every idea, feedback, whatever is welcome. Um, we always reply. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your time. And uh, that's it, everyone. Awesome. Thank you. Truly a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. That was it. We finalized.